Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. Do mentally ill people truly belong in the prison system? Hello and welcome to Crime Connections Podcast. My name is Tiffany and I am your host. Tonight I am here with Cherise Beach, who is the author of At Risk Students, Transforming Student Behavior, which details the warning signs of disturbing behaviors, which are often overlooked not only by educators, but by the mental health professionals. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Tiffany, for having me, and it's wonderful to meet you. So how did you come about writing such a needed book? Because <laughs> this is needed. Well, I've always prided myself as the individual that wore two hats, at least two hats. I've always worked with at-risk or underprivileged um, students in under-reserved or resourced areas. And unbeknownst to me, I believe God chose me to mother uh, my youngest son. Of course, he chose me to mother both my sons. But the youngest son uh, made me understand the true meaning of what it means to be an at-risk student. So I was raising a kid who definitely was at risk in many areas of his life. And I love to go to work. So when people say, well, don't bring your work home with you or, you know, leave your problems at home. Don't bring them to work. I would often say, hmm, how do you do that? Because it's like I'm, I'm living in, in, in the at-risk environment at home. And then when I come to work, I just kind of, yeah, leave home at, at home. But then I'm still in the trenches of working through some pretty hard and traumatizing situations. Um, So that's how the book actually, you know, came about. And I just felt it was good to combine my personal experiences with my professional life, because too often we don't have that combination. Like one can write about a scholarly mission, but to have lived it, it just made it feel, it made me feel completely authentic to do so. So that's how it all started. That's great. Uh, obviously, you knew that there needed to be something out there like this because you're right. So many behaviors are overlooked when mm-hmm. it could be a very serious underlying mental health issue. Absolutely. And we have to look at the times, the times in which things happen. Um, There's really nothing new under the sun. Mental health challenges has been around from the beginning of time. It's just we didn't always have the understanding. We didn't have the resources. We didn't have the plans and the support in place to know what to do. But as we continue to evolve, you know, as a nation, as a country, these things become available. They become clear. They're not as obsolete as they were 50 years ago. So, but so that's why I think the strategies are timeless because 
there's nothing new. The struggle remains the same. So how we go about addressing it, um, working with the families of the, the troubled kids or the kids who are struggling really hard to try to fit into a box that they don't need to fit in. And, you know, that's a whole nother subject with education and the one size fits all. So I, I definitely feel like there is a place for a book about a troubled educational system, parents who are in a troubling situation, and then to have staff, uh, teacher and administrators who come from the same struggle all working together. So to, that's what I envisioned with the book, book, and it did work. It worked. That would be amazing. Have everybody on the same page because that's not very often <laughs> by no, any it's means. Not. So if it's okay with you, Tiff, I would like to only part that I want to read from the book is my preface. And I would like for your audience to understand how trauma looks from the outside looking in, because I wouldn't wish this on anybody. So I'm going to begin now with the preface of the book. As I open my eyes and begin to focus on my surroundings, the bright lights overhead invade the remaining haze in my mind. As I lay here, I realize that tubes are coming out of parts of my body that I can no longer feel. I wonder, what stage of life am I in? Am I alive? Or have I transitioned to the other side? I can't feel anything. I'm just lying here, motionless. Suddenly, I hear voices and realize I'm not alone. There are others in the room with me. My oldest son, Robert, and several of my nearest and dearest family and friends are in the room with me as well. One of my loved ones surrounds me in the hospital bed and looks down on me. Others are offering words of encouragement, while yet others look at me, then turn away to cry as if I can't see their despair. I sense fear and sadness all around me. I feel like I'm on display at a museum. Inside, I'm screaming all the encouragement they need to hear, I need to hear, but nothing comes out. I want to shout at them and tell them, I will live. I have to live, but I can't speak. My eyes search the faces gathered around the bed, and then it hits me. Someone is missing. Oliver. I close my eyes to bite back the tears when I realize my youngest son is the reason I'm here. That's my purpose. That's deep. So to lighten it up a little bit, (laughs) um, (laughs) (laughs) At the time the book was written, I was principal of an alternative school. So I serviced uh, youth from five different counties spilled into this particular school. And these are youth who were expelled from their school from reasons as small as, and I'm not minimizing 
truancy because truancy is the root of all problems. But some students got placed out because they just wouldn't come to school. And others were doing drugs or drinking or violence, you know, multiple fights. So the reason for the school, the makeup of the kids that went to the school was so varied, but the passion behind those of us that worked with the the students, those of us that were running the school, even though I was principal, I don't feel like I ran the school by myself. It was such a joint leadership and collaboration of all staff. So we were able to give all these different communities and all these different reasons that the kids were put out. We were able to make such a difference in the time that they were there Whereas the data supported that 83% of the students transitioned back to their home schools, either with the credits they needed to graduate, or some of them actually graduated from our school and they didn't have to go back. They had just that amount of credits. So it worked. It worked for that. But then, like I said, I would go home to my own struggling teenager. So it was it was the it was definitely the premise for writing a book to say hey when you have some of these signs that we're going to talk about the beginning signs cuz i sort of did started at like you could say the end so now we're going to talk about some of the things that parents specifically can look out for and when parents start to see some of these things definitely bring it to the school and bring it to the person you connect the most with at the school. That's a whole nother chapter because you'd be surprised that sometimes the engineer of a school building would be a little bit more easier to relate to your situation than one of the leaders, one of the assistant principals or the principal or the teacher. Sometimes it's the school secretary that you can feel a connection with, your need is going to get met. My point is don't limit yourself by feeling like, well, I don't like this person or I don't feel comfortable with that person, so I'm just not going to ask for help. You ask for the help and whoever you are comfortable with, they're going to place you in the right position or they're going to take what you need and make sure the person who can help you will. So one of the the first things that I feel we need to talk about is how do we get here? And I have learned we get to that troubling youth stage by some pretty regular things that occur. I have talked to hundreds of parents, and it's not like I said, the story doesn't change so much. It's the faces, it's the names of the families change, but the situations are often recycled. So let's say you have a kid who is maybe eight or nine years old. So that's not even a teenage behavior, but you are noticing items are popping up in your house that you know you didn't buy. And at eight or nine, they're not working yet. <laughs> I mean, we sometimes they need to be, but they're not out gainfully employed. So it's not like the kid can buy these things that you see popping up. So you start the story off with, hey, where did that come from? 
And then you'll get a story like somebody let them borrow it or somebody gave it to them. And you don't think that that's not the case because often it's just as easy to say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Well, for me, it started when Oliver was five years old in kindergarten. It was Christmas time. And at after Christmas, kids were bringing their favorite toys to school and they would do the show and tell. They would have like a little maybe 15, 20 minutes where they could just play with their stuff and then put it away. And not an unusual thing. So after I think two or three weeks of being back in school in January, the teacher sent all the parents a little note in the, the kids' book bag saying, if you find this, and it was a specific girl toy, if you find this toy in your child's bag, kids share their, their toys, they're playing. We don't believe anybody took anything on purpose, but if you find this particular toy, could you please you know, provide us with it so we could give it back to the rightful owner? And I'm like, okay, I went through Oliver's bag. Of course, you know I had the toy. The toy was in his bag. So we talked about it and it went from, I was playing with it. She gave it to me. Um, I forgot I had it to him crying saying, yes, 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 I took it. So I didn't want to risk him not turning it in because he was embarrassed or whatever reason. So I took it up to the school and I gave it to the teacher. And she was consoling me at that point. She was like, oh, Miss Beach, stop feeling so bad. Kids will be kids. This is this happens all the time. It's not that big of a deal. Don't panic. And I'm like, okay, you know, I don't know because I didn't have this issue with my first uh, son. So I don't know. I have to take the teacher at her word. Then we go to continuation of the same thing. Like scooters were a big deal during that time, the, the original scooters. And there was one in my garage. And I was like, where did that come from, Oliver? Oh, the neighbors, um, they gave me this old one because they bought, let's just say, Richie, not the kid's name, a new one. So they gave me this one. Once again, very reasonable. We lived in a very affluent neighborhood. That happened all the time. So I was like, oh, that's nice. Oh, I think a couple of weeks later, Richie's mom came over and said that the kids in the neighborhood have um, told her that Oliver had Richie's scooter. And I said, really? And I described it. She says, yes, that's the one. And I said, oh, wow, I didn't know that. He told me that you guys had gave it to him. She said, no, we didn't. So I look at the scooter good. And I go get Oliver, and I said, Oliver, you lie. This is not a, a scooter that they gave you. And he argued me down in front of Richie's mom. No, no, mom. They, they don't recognize it because I, I changed some things on it. I, I painted this on there, and I, I scratched that off. So, no, that's why she doesn't you know, think it's the one that they gave me. And I looked at him, and I said, they didn't give you any scooter at all. You took Richie's scooter, scooter and you altered it so no one would know that it was his. So then I start to see a pattern of he's going to deny, 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 but he will break down and he will confess. So that became a pattern 
all through his high school years and beyond of, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, and then, yes, I did. So one of the, the things parents need to understand is that old saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. So if you start seeing a pattern of items popping up that you didn't buy and you don't know where they came from, look into it because it could be the start of a pattern. And if you can break it when they're little, then hopefully they don't go into anything bigger. So that's one. The other problem that's, that you start to see when they get become adolescents, like going into junior high, they have a little bit more freedom. So some kids don't do well with that extra freedom. So Oliver was never one to not get along with other kids. He never had a fight a day in his life. He was very, you know, sweet and he played well with others. But then he didn't have any real friends. So we moved and then he got his first real friend. And I was so excited because I'm like, oh, my God, that's the one thing he's been missing. Now he'll be more connected to, you know, his community, his school. This is good. Well, no, it wasn't because the one friend that I was so happy he had, he took Oliver's poor behavior choices to a whole new level. And it was very difficult to manage what was the day to day. Like one day you could have a normal household and talk about things like how was school? How did you do? What help do you need? And the next day I'm getting telephone calls from his dean saying, he walked in the building and they have him walking out. And that was, that pretty much was for the first three years of uh, high school, it was hard until I said, okay, you guys have to figure out what are we going to do? We're a team. What he's, the program he's in, the regular program, it's not working for him. He's not, he's not thriving. And I told the dean, I said, you're calling me almost every day reporting what he's doing. I said, you don't realize it, but I do the same job you do at my school. So I'm going to need you to come up with, let's come up with a plan because calling me can't be the only solution. So we did, and we eventually realized that he needed an alternative placement himself. He needed to be in an alternative school where he learns differently, more hands-on, not expected to change classes and actually go to the classes. Uh, So that worked for, that did, that worked. It it got him out of high school and it it cut down on some of the struggle with him not wanting to be in school because he felt so disconnected. So it did work out pretty well for him. So where it got to be the moment of, okay, we've made it through high school. We're going to be okay now. It's time to get a job. It's time to let's talk about school. Let's talk about trade school because he definitely wasn't looking at a four-year college opportunity. He had a learning disability. So we were working with him where he was. So he comes to me one day. He's like 19, I think. He had worked a couple of odd jobs, couldn't keep the jobs. he would grow tired. He wouldn't, he would just walk off the job. So I knew that we had a problem on our hand. And so, oh, let me back up from the stealing. 
So back seven, eight years old, uh, we did take him to a psychologist. You don't go straight to a psychiatrist. You go to a psychologist when it's a child. And if the psychologist feels like there's more needed to help the child, the psychologist refers the family to a psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist immediately puts him on Prozac. And I'm like, why would he be depressed? He's out here, you know, running amok of my life. I should be on Prozac. I, you know, I was very confused, but I gave it a chance and we thought it helped for a little while, but it really, it was just like that placebo effect. It was like we wanted everything to work so badly and it seemed like it did, but it really did not. So he was on psychotropic drugs from the time he was nine years old, which back then it was looked at to be quite early, but I think his behavior warranted it. He would never talk during the therapy sessions. He would shut down every time. And that's when he was diagnosed because the depression and anxiety was really the only thing the psychiatrist could find to say, well, there's something going on inside of him that's just a little bit not, it's disconnected. So it's either depression or anxiety. So we did think it was helping. Then we realized it wasn't. So when he became 14, I believe, the diagnosis was changed to bipolar disorder. And I started doing all the research I could find about that and the different strategies that we can do at home to help, keeping his teachers in the loop so they you know, would know the signs to look for. So, And then he's in the alternative school finally. So it did that did seem to work. But at 19, he came to me and he said, Mom, I'm tired of feeling bad all the time. He says, when I take my medicine like I should, my stomach is hurting or my head is hurting or I can't sleep. And then here we go with the next thing is, oh, let me give another prescription so he could sleep. So it's like, I wasn't feeling good about all of these different medications. And he's telling me now he's feeling ill. So I said, you have to remember, though, the doctor said, don't stop taking the medication unless you talk to the doctor first. And he's like, I know, I know. He says, but I really want to jump in front of this. Can we just go into the hospital so they can like keep me for a few days and figure out what is the best medicine for me? So I'm like, at 19, he's making sense. He's, I, I didn't do too bad <laughs> as a mom. He's doing what I need him to do. He's actually advocating for himself and he wants to feel better and he wants to do better. So we did that. Um, and the doctor at the time said he, he prescribed this medication. I won't say the name because I don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable. But um, it's a very heavy duty one. And his, his um, directions was, if you stop taking this medication without the support of me stepping stepping you down, you will be worse off than if you've never taken the medication. But now, just picture being in the hospital for five days. So you're confined. You're not running around with your buddies. You're not having phone calls and outside influences. You're trying to feel better, and you start to feel better. So those words didn't have any weight. Uh, Oliver was saying, absolutely. 
I will not stop taking my meds. I'm going to make this work. I want things to work out for my family and me. He was just so upbeat. And then he he luckily got a local job uh, with NASCAR racing where, where we live. That's a big deal. It's a seasonal thing, but it's a really big deal. So he was up all night. The crew cleans up like the stadium and the stands and all that. They clean up all of the trash and debris and to prepare for the next day. So I think it was like a seven-day event. And he was so excited. He was making really good money, he felt. And and so he came to me, and because of the change in hours, he's like, I can't sleep in the daytime, and I have to be up at night because that's what the job calls for. And he says, and then I'm sick uh, for two and three hours, and I can't really feel good doing my job. He's like, I know I'm not supposed to stop taking this medicine, but I'm not going to take it anymore. And I was like, please don't stop. Please don't stop. But remember, he was 19. I couldn't make him do anything at that point. And he stopped. And the job ended. He wouldn't go back to the doctor to talk about next steps in treatment plan. What should we do now? He just felt started to feel good. He started to feel like his old self. And his old self was not in a good place because he did nothing to help himself. He was basically just hanging out all night with his friends and trying to sleep all day because he didn't want to run into me and hear my continuation of saying the same thing over and over again. So it became a pattern and I'm like, I'm not having it. So he was driving a truck that I had given him and I was trying to get him back into treatment. So nothing I said would do it. So I had one of my staff members followed me home and we took the truck and we hit the truck. And so when I came home, he was he was here and he looked at me and he's like, Mom, you took the truck? And I'm like, yes, I took the truck. You wouldn't get back into treatment. You won't go and find a job. You won't look at what you could be doing to further your education, getting involved in a trade. So I needed to give you a wake-up call because you weren't doing it. So he said, okay, okay, mom, I understand, I understand. So it's August and it's beautiful outside. So I'm sitting outside and I'm, it's funny, (laughs) I was having a cocktail (laughs) and I'm talking to my bestie And all of a sudden, he came from behind, and I didn't see him. And he hit me. He hit the side of my head with a two-by-four. We were in the process of finishing our basement. So there was lots of wood, nails, all kinds of stuff was kind of laying around. And so that that happened, and it knocked my cell phone completely, because I think I had the phone up to my head. And when he hit me, it knocked the cell phone like across the yard. And I, and I looked at him and I was like, what's happening here? And his eyes, and see, this is the part that nobody sees other than the victim who is going through the trauma. He's my child. I looked at him 
and I literally saw the whites of his eyes. He, his eyes rolled all the way up and back into his head. It was no different than any horror movie. If anyone is into that, which I kind of am, it's no different than any horror movie that you would see it be in the mindset of, wow, that was interesting. That was, that was kind of hard to look at. So I saw that and it's such a horrible story. Um, and it, it, the beating lasted a very long time. Uh, he took me from the patio of our house outside to the basement where the where it was under construction. Plus, that's where no one could hear a whole lot going on from the street. And my neighborhood didn't have a lot of people out anyway. So it was a pretty safe bet no one would hear. And he went through several different ways. And it was all to kill me. And he said that he heard me tell my girlfriend that I didn't love him. Of course, that was not the conversation, never came out of my mouth. We weren't even talking about him. He start, So that's what I realized. He was having a psychotic blackout. The rolling, the eyes going back is the blackout. And him hearing stuff is what happens during a blackout. You, you're hearing things, you're imagining things that are not there. And so he, that made him angry to have heard me say that. So I had to die. And he did everything. He tried to get me to drink bleach. I definitely was. I said, you know what? You can just kill me any other kind of way, but I am not drinking bleach. And it was such an odd, I'd say about maybe 45 minutes that this went on. It was so odd because you're trying to kill me. And I'm instructing you on what I will do and what I won't do and other things down the road. And he would stop and attentively look at me because at the end of the day, I'm his mom. I was mom. So when I said, I am definitely not drinking this bleach, so you're going to have to figure out another way. And he looked and had that kind of like shrugged up in his shoulders like, okay, all right. And then he did other things. So I think what really got me to the point of being unconscious was when he decided to stab me several times and he slit my throat and just repeatedly stabbed me all over my chest and um, stomach area. And I, and I'm a tiny girl, but I think I'm so strong, but I know, I know God was right there. So then again, I instructed him. I was almost had no more, energy to to give. So I said, you may not believe this, but my best friend, Cheryl, I said, she's not going to not be able to reach me. We were not through talking. She's going to get somebody here. They're probably on their way. They're going to be pulling up any minute. I think you should take all the weapons you've used. Because he, he hit me in the head with a hammer. He pulled my hair out with, you know, that side of the hammer that you pull the nails out with. He was pulling my hair out. I said, take all of those things because they're all bloody with your prints, put them in my car and you get out of here. And he he was like, okay, mom. And he started gathering stuff up. And I think at that point, it was God's timing. All I remember shortly after I instructed him to do that 
the next face I look at was the police officer down, you know, I'm in the basement and I looked at his face. He looked at me and that was it. The next time I was conscious, I was in ICU. So at the hospital. So, um, and of course they had, they picked up Elijah, uh, uh, not Elijah, Lord have mercy. That's his son. They picked up Oliver on site and that, that was that. So, when I started talking about the hospital scene, then I started to give um, you guys a little picture of what it looked like from a mother and a an educator's point of view of just those little simple things, the lying, the taking stuff, um, the not going to school, not following any directions. And there were other things along the way, but that would take so much more time than what this beautiful podcast has. So the point is, is parents, when you start to see those signs and they, and people tell you it's no big deal, boys will be boys or whatever the case may be, or she'll grow out of it or whatever. Don't take that so lightly, get the help that is available to you. And if it's not working, continues to seek until it does seek it until it works. That is crazy story. And I am so glad that you are here to tell it because you had a hammer, two by four, you were stabbed. You are lucky to be alive. Exactly. Exactly. And I recovered unbelievably fast. Like the surgeon said to me after three days, he's like, I, he's like, I'm, I can't believe it. I'm in awe. Your wounds are like healing up. Like, you know, just think again of a horror movie where the person gets stabbed or or, or, or gets cut. And then you just watch the, the scar heal up before your eyes. That's what the doctor said he felt was happening. Like he would see me every other day for the first three to four days. And he's like, I cannot believe how fast you're healing. So he had anticipated me being in the hospital for at least 10 days. After I got into a regular room, I was released after three days because it did not warrant me to be in the hospital. I was healing. I mean, it was a long recovery, but I did not need to be in the hospital. So it was not my time to go. I believe that God saved my life because I'm put here to help save others, to keep families from having to go through this if they just follow the signs. And clearly, don't take the truck from a kid who's having some issues. Don't don't take anything from them because that, that, and if I had known then what I've learned now, I would never have done that. Because when you're dealing with psychotropic drugs and a psychotic type of disorder, you cannot say what will and will not happen. So you have to, as a parent, as as a relative of a loved one that is in your presence or you're with them for whatever reason, you have to be cognizant of that, that these, these, these situations are not typical. They're not a typical day. When people are putting medication in their systems to regulate their behaviors and to regulate their thinkings and their outcomes, you can't make decisions that may interfere with that regulation process. But I didn't know that then, but I know it now. 
So I just don't want any other family to go through what my family had to go through. But like I said, I'm here to help. What ended up happening with Oliver? Well, Oliver went to jail immediately. And it was a year-long trial. I, Of course, I didn't press charges against my own child because I knew we were dealing with mental health issue. But at that point, it was out of my hand. It was the state versus Oliver. So, and, and like I said, my recovery was, I got, couldn't drive for a while. It was, it was belabored. So um, after a year of going to trial, I would see him because I couldn't see him because I was victim. And if you, in any parent, thank God, I hope you never have to know the penal system to know how that works. If you're the victim of the crime, you cannot see the person. So it was very hard. Like my oldest son could go visit him. His dad at the time lived in Houston, so he couldn't see him too often until he came, you know, up to Illinois area. But um, he ended up getting 10 years after a year-long court cases. I shouldn't say trial. It really wasn't a trial. But um, the DA had asked for 20. The judge settled for 10. And uh, we thought that he would get out sooner, but he didn't. I mean, it was because they it's, it's attempted murder. See, as a parent, it was like the, the feeling was more like he had a horrible experience and he did something horrible to me, but he wasn't himself when he did it. It's not the same as when a person has orchestrated someone else's demise and they plotted it out and they went through it, you know, to, to carry it out. And I had to have um, professional friends of mine to say, but you're looking at it from totally in the mother eyes. The point is, if that happened to someone else, let's say if he did that to someone else, they're not going to have that same thought. And I probably wouldn't either because it's going to be the same thing. It was an attempt to kill. It was attempted murder, regardless of all the other circumstances. So um, then, you know, as a family, we we worked hard to, uh, we, had to we definitely got a lawyer, but it was what's called the post-conviction, which is a different lawyering effect. So it's after you're convicted is when, because I really felt like he had his case was so strong to say, yeah, he was definitely a victim of a psychotic break and he should be hospitalized, um, you know, confined to a hospital in, in all kind of treatment. And it wasn't looked at like that. So so we had to work through the post-conviction. So we did hire him, who turned out to be a very good lawyer. And he continues to be a family friend of ours. Um, he did a very good job. And I think with that caused his treatment to be, he was safe in prison. He was well-liked by the guards, but he didn't get any extra time. But he did um, he did get treated very well because he's really a nice person. So he was released. His 10 years was up, um, 2017, and he was released. And again, court system says you cannot go to the home of the victim, 
while you're on parole, because he had three three year parole, I believe. So he stayed with his brother and his brother's family until um, a such point that he was able to come and stay with me. And currently he lives with me along with his son, who will be turning 18 in a couple of weeks. So we three live together. Was he very remorseful once he realized what he attempted to do? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, To the point that it was several years before he could even hear fully what he did. He could, he's he's like, I can't. He didn't remember. He didn't remember doing all of the things he did. He said, I remember us struggling in the basement. I was like, us struggling in the basement? I said, you were hitting me. You were stabbing. You were hitting me with hammers and all that. He's like, mom, I don't remember any specific thing. He said, I just remember being down in the basement and I do remember you being hurt. And he said, I know I did something. He says, but I don't remember any of that. And I couldn't say that he did or he didn't. I would think as a human being, you would truly want to block out you know, as much of that as you could. I I could truly see that. But at that point in time, I wasn't too much worried about whether he remembered or not. I was more concerned about making sure that he's okay to the point where he can live a normal life and not have to have that stigma attached. And oddly enough, he still is that easygoing, He's not a confrontational type of adult. He never was as a kid. Um, he's just easy peasy. And he's very productive. He, he works. He's raising his son. And it's it's wonderful. Now, it's time to put them both to launch. It's definitely time. <laughs> but it has been, it has been good. It has been good. So his plan is to move out in 2024 and um it take his son with him. And I'm like, then I get to be a regular grandmother like I am to my other grandkids where, you know, there's visits and there's plenty of time to spend together. But then I can just, once I clean up my house, I don't have to worry about nobody moving anything. I'm looking forward to that. Amen to that. <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> yes, yes. Is his son showing any symptoms? I know bipolar is it's hereditary. It can be passed it's down. It's funny you should ask that, Tiffany. His son is bipolar disorder with psychosis. Most definitely. So and I've had his son since he was five years old. I'm his legal guardian, because keep in mind, well you I didn't give the timeline, but when Oliver went to prison, his son was two, or I think he, he might have turned three. So I had his his son, I raised his son from age five. So, wow. yeah. mm-hmm. so maybe it's not about so much, I, I though I've helped a lot of families along the way, but it's helping the ones that God put in my life. At least I was here to do it. I was here to do it, but yes. Mm -hmm. You are an amazing woman. I want you to know that. Well, I thank you. If you guys, if you and your audience, the takeaway 
just remember, if you're in a psychotic situation with a loved one or someone you don't know very well or someone you're getting to know, do, do limited talking and do more, how can I help? What do you need from me? And keep the communication very simple using less words because the person going through the episode is already triggered. So they don't need additional things to be deciphering in their head because they're already all over the place. So that I learned and that I always pass that on when I'm talking to people. And oddly enough, my oldest son, who's um, he's a high school administrator and a licensed therapist, a behavior therapist for adolescents, he does that part time. And I think that he got thrown into wanting to do that to help kids because of the thing that he went through with his brother and his mother, you know, me. And um, he's, he's remarkable. He's a remarkable person. And he has been so such a support system for Oliver's son, who is his, his name is Elijah. He's been my oldest son is such a support system for both, you know, everybody. So the family operates as one big happy unit, but we're very comfortable with the fact that we have to be mindful because the almost 18-year-old is taking psychotropic medications. But the good news is he doesn't drink. He doesn't do any kind of drugs. He's not a hanging out type of kid. He's a little bit introverted. So introverted people are not so quick to talk about how they feel. So we keep communication. We keep the lines open and we keep them real. So even if it's something that he needs to be reprimanded for, we don't hold back, but we make sure that he understands fully why, that he's not having to feel a certain kind of way and say, I don't know why they're mad at me, or I don't know what I did. We make sure everything is really clear. So it's working. It's, it's a work in, pro, in, in progress, but it's working. Well, good. Good. I'm glad that you you learned a very hard lesson, but yes. it's an important lesson, and it's great that you're sharing it with other people, because this is probably happening in more homes than we even think of. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And that's why I want to be able to open up to help someone else see that, you know, you don't, it's never over until it's over. So you don't know what you're doing to bring effective change to other people. So it's good when you have some strategies in place that, you know, you can practice and you can work with. So I feel good about the journey. I have to say, I do feel good about the journey. Well, you should. You should be very proud of yourself. First of all, you are a woman of power and you are here to tell your story. You never gave up on your family and you're still fighting for the justice now. And I think that's amazing. And I commend you for it. Well, thank you, Tiffany. And thank you for having me. As a guest on your show, it has been absolutely amazing. If somebody wants to buy your book, where can they find it? I know it's on your website. My website is my non-for-profit, which is Youth Transformation Services. I think I put the book in my in my um, 
bio, but I, you know, I don't feel like I want to push. You know, I'm not saying, oh, you need to go buy the book. But if you have, if you feel like you have the struggle, or you are an educator and you want these strategies and solutions, they're timeless. Um, always, you could go to Amazon um, to get it. My name, Shree Speech. The book is At Risk Students Transforming Student Behavior. And Barnes & Noble carries it as well. So, yeah, if anybody interested in get it, that would be amazing. Yeah, I'll make sure. I'm also going to put the links in the show notes. So Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Kat. Of course. You're not the only one going through this. <laughs> so oh, also, share the on wealth. <laughs> on, that, on that note as well, again, um, the website is designed to provide parents and educators with um, workshops that can help where they are dealing with struggling kids, struggling academically, socially. Uh, we have a video game coming out to help kids with social emotional learning. It should be launching in March of 24. Uh, so we have some good stuff in place to, again, to further provide resources to those who may not know of where to go to look or may not be so quick to find what they need. And something as simple as a video game taught in school can make a difference in if the kid has to, in order to earn badges or get to next levels, they have to make those positive, socially emotional learning choices. So I can be reached there. Um, I can be reached Anywhere, my email, anywhere. I mean, people, just just call me. <laughs> I can be available. You might not want to do that. <laughs> no, I think I did take my phone number off of there because nobody was calling me, but it's, you know, there's so many scammers and so much spam going on. I did have to remove the contact information, but um, you can follow me on IG. Um, it's a lot of, it's any way that I'm on all social media. So just Sheree Speech, you'll find me. Anybody that wants to privately consult or talk about the book or talk about strategies, I'm here. I love it. I love it. Love it. I think you're doing amazing work. And again, I'm just so happy everything worked out for you and your family. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me this week. If any of my episodes resonate with you, would you please make sure that you reach out to me? It's very important that I know the work that I'm doing is actually beneficial. And if you just find good value in these, please make sure that you subscribe, you're rating, and you're reviewing. Share it with your friends, especially if you know somebody could actually use this information in their own life. That's what these are here for. Keep finding strength, my resiliency tribe. Until next time. Of course, thank you.